The views and opinions expressed by A Little Bit Culty are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by our guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, business individual, anyone, or anything. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Edmondson, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Anthony Ames, Sarah's husband, a.k.a. Nippy. And we're here to talk about things that are... A little bit culty. Speaking of, we were in a cult, and we woke up. Thank goodness. And we have a lot to say. And a lot to ask. This podcast is going to be a deep dive into everything from the red flags, the narcissism, the manipulation, the resiliency, the recovery process, and everything in between. Also, we want to share some of the good we got out of it so you can get all the nuggets without having to join a cult. If you haven't already, because there are a lot of things out there that are just a little bit culty. Welcome to A Little Bit Culty, a podcast about the fads, beliefs, and trends that blur the line between healthy and a little bit culty. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And find us on Instagram if you have any suggestions for things you have found to be a little bit culty. Under the surface, the water fills my lungs. This ground I worship has swallowed up its young. And you give for a promise. Hey, Nippy. Hello, Sarah. How are you today? I'm good. You and I just decided we're going to skip the banter today because yep. we have a really long episode and a lot to cover. Yeah, and it's an intense one. It's, it's an intense it's one. It's not bantery. No, it doesn't so, feel appropriate to banter before this. So we're just going to get right to it. You know, we're cute and funny. Let's go. Let's launch right in. All right. All right. So what happens when you find a sense of identity and belonging and maybe even something approximately like love? Sounds familiar. A thing that you've always wanted but you find it within a group that is in fact a violent and racist extremist organization. And if by chance you wake up to what's inherently terrible about it and manage to escape that thinking, how do you then seek redemption? How do you then unscrew your brain, your heart, and your spirit? How do you clean up your mess? Is there a way back? Good question. In 2017, Samantha Freedom, not her real name, she goes by an assumed name out of a myriad of safety and doxing concerns, was the top-ranking woman leader in Identity Europa, the white nationalist organization behind the violent Charlottesville, Virginia, Unite the Right rally that resulted in the death of 20-year-old Heather Heyer. The horror in the images from that rally, neo-Nazis with so-called respectable makeovers, marching with tiki torches and chanting things like blood and soil, and we will not be replaced, is burned into America's collective consciousness. And the footage of a white supremacist with a reported fascination with Hitler mowing down a crowd of counter-protesters in his car, among them Heather Heyer, is gutting to watch. For our guest today, the chaotic and violent scene that unfolded in Charlottesville was when the fever dream of her descent into white supremacy broke. She joined us to talk about her journey and the work in progress that is her ongoing process of healing and atoning. And we just want to acknowledge that this is really hard and gritty territory recovering. And while we have empathy for any human being who's trying to figure their shit out, and we've been so glad for the chance to speak with Samantha, 
We also want to honor the fact that there are listeners in our audience living and dealing with the ongoing trauma of white supremacy right now, every day, and frankly have been for generations. We want to be mindful and let you know that the conversation that you're about to listen to can be a little tough at time, content-wise. Discussing white nationalism with a former poster child is going to be a messy conversation, although necessary. This stuff has hurt people, and it continues to hurt people. We feel you, we love you, and we want to get it right. I really want to get it right. And spoiler alert, we will probably not always get it right. But we offer this episode as a tool for understanding and with a sense of humility that we have a lot to learn. And here it is, our conversation with Samantha Freedom, a former white supremacist. Hi, Sam. Hi, how are you? Welcome. That was actually our first question for you. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know that I super appreciate it when people start with that. Just, But like, seriously, how how are you doing? You know, what's really weird is I am great right now. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it took a while, but I am actually in the process of packing out my house to move to the city I've always wanted to live in for a job that I've always wanted to have to start the life I've dreamed. Like, I don't know. I'm I'm feeling really good right now. (laughs) Yeah. That's so great. I'm really happy to hear that you're not in the same place that I heard you in, in some of your other interviews, which is, you know, an important place, I think, in healing, but also it's a hard place to stay in, in this dark sort of shame spiral once you realize things. Am I right? Yeah, that you were not very cash money as it turns out. Ultimately, what we're trying to accomplish is we want to expose the mechanics of the process of the abuses of power. And this is such a compelling story. So one of the things that fortunately for the people that were in our organization, Nexium ESP, if you don't know, the people that did the doc on us were able to do an episode at least where people can go, hmm, I see how that could have happened to me. Or they relate on some level. Some people think they're immune to it, pretend they're immune to it, believe they're immune to it. That's fine. You may be. That's not who I'm trying to, we're trying to talk to. Write that episode for yourself in this thing. What did you relate to? Help our listeners understand what it was you related to where they could go, hmm, maybe. So I guess a quick primer for it is that I grew up in New Jersey, just in a really weird dysfunctional family. My parents tried their absolute best, but they were negligent, not in, not in an abusive way necessarily, but in like an emotional way. And that left me and my brother to our own device of just creating these worlds for ourselves. So I was already very good at like living in my own mythos and my own like story. When I was about 15 or 16, I was right in the middle of high school. I ended up moving to Florida. And about a year or two prior to that, I had finally like made this group of friends that I was formulating my identity with. I had a boyfriend who I, you know, was obviously not going to marry, but he was like my first love. And it was like our six month anniversary. The week after school ended, I went to Florida and just it just kind of shifted everything. Like I had this whole sense of self and then it was completely torn from me. And now I have to start over. And I'm like this weird girl from New Jersey who has to reprove herself or redefine who she is to other people. And I kind of decided that I was not going to do that. So I just kind of stayed on the outskirts, didn't really care. 
you know, smoked a lot of weed, did the teenage thing. I was a real hellion. I wanted to get out of Florida. I did not have any clue as to how to do it because I just wanted to be as far away as possible and do it on my terms. So I got a job at this like fast casual place, worked my way at management. And I got a call from a colleague at the time. I was like 20. And they said that they were expanding the market of this business in South Carolina. And so I went to South Carolina First time in my life, I saw like two of the city's features that I moved to and went back to my parents and was like, hey, I'm moving to South Carolina in two weeks. And that was that. Like there was no say about it. I was like, I am doing this. So I lived in South Carolina for about two years. I was 22, 23. My father's an alcoholic. But anyway, so he called me one night, pretty sauced. He revealed some information about the family, about himself that... um really caused a fallout between me and him. So when my father told me this information about himself, um, I had realized that my identity in terms of my relationships with my family and men in particular was also entirely built on lies and completely shattered. So this was about March of 2014. And I just remember I was on a date when my father called me. I looked at the phone and said, you know what? I'm going to drink about this. If nothing else, I'm your daughter. I'm going to just avoid this as long as possible. So about two months into my career as a blackout drunk, I met this guy and I fell in love with him. I just fell in love with him and just had this moment of like, after all of this trouble in my life, just this one perfect night where I meet this perfect, perfect person, have the perfect conversation. That's it. That's all I need. We were like, you know, in our very early twenties, that kind of like very Mm -hmm. young, like passion. So very early into the relationship, it got really toxic because I still had no idea who it was. And I'd just been drinking the whole time. Early into the relationship, I actually got pregnant and we had never thought about kids. We had never thought about any of it. And that forced us to ask a lot of questions that we didn't, we didn't know we were going to have to. We made an appointment to terminate the pregnancy on the very last day that you could. And we spent the whole time just debating, do we want kids? Do we not want kids? And we realized like, With him, I would have. I wanted to. But I ended up miscarrying before that happened. And that kind of really messed us up. That, again, ruined my sense of identity. Not only was it now my relationships with men, but now my relationship with myself as a woman. Can I carry a a child? Can I do this? Can I do that? All of these really, really sad what-ifs that you ask when something like that happens. And it really tore us apart. So after about six months of just going crazy... Uh, we broke up and I had decided I'm going, you know, we're going to break up for a year. We'll see what happens. And I decided that I was going to invest in being perfect for him. So I changed careers. I quit drinking. I, you know, started exercising, lost weight, did all this stuff, had a new group of friends. I was a whole new person. And we met up and something was different, you know, but I just assumed that it was like me where I was, you know, I improved. Like I was great. I healed all my wounds. I did not know that he spent that year salting his. And so maybe a couple of weeks, a couple months in, he started saying, you know, he started saying the Nazi things that at the time I didn't know they were. He said I was a race traitor. He said I, he couldn't defend me on the day of the rope. He said that I was a degenerate, that my friends were bad influences on me, that I should stop talking to people because they're energy vampires. Can you tell me what a race traitor is? 
Um, like a white person who doesn't basically only identify as white or do what would be defined by this group as like white. So like I have, I have friends that are people of color, you know, if there was some sort of cause, I would, I would call the Senator and say like, you know, people of color deserve better treatment or women deserve access to birth control and things to help their body. And I was a race trader. Okay. There are a few people in my family that are gay and I, I support them and love them. And it like that never meant anything to me. So this is the indoctrination. He got indoctrinated at the time that you guys were apart. Yeah. And then. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I had found out was after he started saying all these things, there was one night I confronted him. It was like the week before Thanksgiving of 2016. And I went to his house and all of these little phrases kept adding up. Like they just kept piling on and just, I had no idea what language he was speaking. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I was just like, I don't get this. So I went to his house and I sat down and, you know, we had kind of a nice conversation. I was really tense. He could tell that I was anxious about something. So I just brought it up to him and said, like, what is all of this? Like, what are you telling me? Why are you saying all these things? If you want to be with me, why do you want to be with someone you think is a degenerate? Why do you want to be with someone that you think is a race traitor or that you like, what the fuck is the day of the rope? And he basically said that when we broke up, he blamed himself and he hated himself for not being strong enough to support me. But that in order for him to stop hating himself, he decided to just hate me. So he started powerlifting and got into men's boards on the 4chan, on 4chan. That got him into like men's rights and that got him into traditional gender roles. And that got him into if you are a white person, you marry a white person, you have a white baby, the world is going to hate you. And that got him into being a racist and that got him into announcing to me that he was a fascist and he didn't want to be with me if I wasn't a fascist. That I'm his enemy, that he loves me, that he's a fascist. He can't be with me if I'm not a fascist. And I'm sitting there just gobsmacked, like just completely. That's not, that was not him. You know, he, he has the same voice. He has the same face, but that was not, that did not make sense to me. So I obviously started crying because um, that's what I do. And I left his house and was just, I was trying to figure out how a I didn't see this coming, why I didn't look up because I did not Google any of these things. I was terrified to. He would bring this stuff up and I was like, well, if I look that up, then basically I'd have to confront reality that this guy is bad news. And we never talked about politics before. We listened to a lot of folk punk. He was very sensitive. He was an artist. We would have days where we skip work and we'd get like these little canvases and I would do watercolor paintings and he would do oil paintings or we would read to each other on hammocks. Like nothing about him or his personality ever gave me the impression that fascism was going to be the hill he dies on. Mm. So I went home and just said, you know, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to understand what this is. And then I'm going to call him back up and say that you're wrong. And these are all the points that I'm going to, you know. Ah, so you were, so you were researching so that you could help get him out. Yeah. Okay. And then what happened? I was very careful about the websites that I picked and chose. I did not go on 4chan. I did not go on Reddit. I went on other websites that made, all of these things just sound like we're awakened Europeans that want to defend our, our legacy and, and love and honor our heritage, you know, and get back to the roots of who we are. Because I did this for five days before I decided to talk to him about it. He called me in that time and told me that he was diagnosed bipolar and that he had early symptoms of schizophrenia. And that was kind of the out that I needed. 
Because I was like, oh, you're not an asshole. You're just, you know, you got some stuff to work on. In my head, because I knew that bipolar people went through cycles, I was like, all right, well, maybe this is just his weird fascist cycle. I allowed myself to give and say, okay, he's just sick. He's just, he's just sick and he just needs medication and, you know, some therapy or whatever. And I'll just, I'll just appease him and let him have this. And all of these thoughts, I'll just let him believe that they're true for now. And then in a couple months or a couple weeks, he'll wake up from it and it'll be fine. So you were appeasing him. So the decision was either appease or confront. Yeah. And he is a very stubborn person. And I had just spent a year, a year and a half trying to make myself perfect for him. And I was like, well, Mm -hmm. I I can't lose this investment. I can't spend all of this time trying to be good enough for this person. And then with this confrontation, if I say, well, that won't do to just lose this person forever. Like I was so deeply and toxically in love with him. And without having a firm sense of identity to begin with, when all of this started with him, Right. My identity was I was his girlfriend. And so when we had the confrontation, you know, he did what I now know are like normal alt-right talking points or alt-right strategies where you have a conversation with someone and they frame the conversation in such a way where you feel like there can only be an A, B answer. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and no matter what your answer is, you're wrong and they're right. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it didn't matter. And so he did a lot of that with me too. He did a lot of, if I want to be with him, I come home earlier. I don't do this. I don't hang out with those friends. And it very quickly became abusive and toxic. And, you know, the second I came home a minute late or didn't text him back fast enough or call him on my lunch breaks or do any of these things, he was going to break up with me. He didn't love me as much. Was it like that previously? Was this part of his new persona or did he have tendencies to do that beforehand? When he did it beforehand, he would confess to me that it was out of an insecurity. Oh, wow. So he buried that. Yeah. it's. I mean, really, all of it went from him turning his insecurity on himself to him turning all of that doubt onto me. And I also was in this weird fluctuation of not knowing who I was. So I mm-hmm. just took it. You know, we were known in the city of like, you know, these are these two people. They're going to be together whether they like it or not. You know, and that was kind of what we had determined ourselves, I guess. But yeah, so he started becoming more controlling, you know, and I I, I don't blame him for a lot of it. He was mm-hmm. sick and I also contributed to it. I asked for it. I wanted Mm -hmm. someone to tell me what to do, to tell me who to be. What was his reaction when you said, okay, let's do this? He was surprised and (laughs) he kind of laughed it off, but he said, won't you let me have just one thing for myself? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) interesting. But I know that at the time, I think he meant it as kind of a a silly thing. But again, as my journey through the alt-right goes on, I realized he was joking a lot less than he uh, made me think. So thus far, I'm hearing that the appeal was to maintain the relationship, nothing ideologically that you're seeing online. No, no. When did that begin? When he and I started talking more and as I was on this journey of trying to be this perfect woman for him, we would tiptoe around the miscarriage. And he had Mm -hmm. started talking to me about how, I think this was still around the time where like Brock Turner was still a name, that kid, that asshole that raped a woman behind a dumpster at a college campus. Stanford swimmer. Uh, Yes. These people were still in newspapers. Jokes were being made about them, you know, and this was kind of the beginning of, you know, white men are the problem. This was ramping up all for the Me Too movement that happened a year later. 
and so the guy that I was with just kept saying, if we have a kid and they're white, they're going to be a white, it's going to be a white son. And look at all of these white men that are being accused of these terrible things. And in my head, I was like, they're not a, like they did it. It's not a matter of being accused. Right. Like I'm very, <laughs> right. I'm confused. Like all these white men being held <laughs> yeah. Accountable. And you know, yeah. and I didn't know how to have that conversation with him because I knew he was sensitive. He was like, look at all these TV shows where it's always the dopey white boyfriend and the soulful black girlfriend or, you know, the really naive, silly, redheaded white girl girlfriend and, you know, the cool drug dealer Mexican boyfriend. And he was like, you know, this is all propaganda. Media is propaganda. Every conversation you have, someone is trying to sell you something. Why don't you see that? And he's like, just live for one day. Look at every billboard. Look at everything. There's always an interracial couple. There's always this. There's always that. And they lived in South Carolina, so it's like a little harder to find. Um, but it was, <laughs> but it was there. Um, you know. But I'm, I'm watching TV shows. I'm watching documentaries, and in my head, it was something I never thought about before. I, I, I don't mm-hmm. care if, you know, I care about people treating each other correctly. And if you have a boyfriend, they're good to you. If you have a girlfriend, they're good to you. Not if you have a boyfriend, what kind of kids might you, what kind of lineage are you passing down? That was never like, what's your DNA structure? I never cared. So he's, he's enrolling you into the picture that white men are being persecuted through media. Yeah. And that if I have kids with him, our family will be persecuted that we will be raising problematic kids that will hate themselves. So he's not noticing helping you see how everyone kind of has that treatment by the media No, and to paint. Okay. So he's strictly honing in on yes. white men are getting it. Yeah. And so it was that it was mainly that white people are being attacked. And because we were so sensitive about the miscarriage, the idea of having a child was already a very difficult topic for me and to have it with him and to have what, you know, it was just this whole mix of ideas in my head of just, if I do have a kid and they are white, are they going to be hated? Like, was it better that I miscarried? Like, it was just such a really, it felt impossible to have these thoughts. Right. Well, he ha- sounds like he had, you know, his meat hooks in you a little oh, bit. Oh, he sure did. Was- yeah. We were so obsessed with each other in such uh-huh. a toxic way. Again, even though I knew he was full of shit, even though I knew that none of this was real, that it was all perception, I just had to go with it. And I'd been going with it mm-hmm. so long at that point that I was like, well, all right, I'll give him I'll give him that day. I'll give him that day and I'll look at the billboards and I'll see the kinds of families that are on there. I guess because he shifted my perspective and because I elected to believe that it was true, I saw it. I found what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And what was that? Did you have a moment where you're like, oh, this feels right? Or did it happen over time? That was the first time that I felt like I truly understood what he was saying. But which was when? Tell, take us back to that. I was driving down the road and there was a billboard. It was a black man on the billboard. And it was something to the effect of like, black fathers, you're better than that. You don't have to disappear in your kids or black fathers, you're better than that. Let us help you take, like have the family you've always wanted or something like that. And in my head, I was like, oh my God, black men are being empowered and white men aren't. That's crazy. And again, I knew at the time that white men were empowered as fuck. Like, you know, like there was no... And but just in my head, I was like, wow, there's a billboard like trying to help people of color. And here I am like dating and living with a super sensitive white guy. And, you know, I I feel like I can't help him. And who's going to help him? Here's this family, this, you know, watching TV, you know, or um, comedians in cars with coffee or comedians in cars getting coffee was on. And I asked him to watch the episode with Jerry and Barack Obama, because obviously Barack Obama is cool. 
And the whole time he was like, see how Barack Obama, like, even though he doesn't say anything revolutionary or profound or even that funny, he just, everyone says that he has swag and he's cool. And I was like, well, he does though. But again, Mm -hmm. it was, he's being promoted as this really cool person. Just everything that we did, he would pinpoint into how it was like, quote unquote, anti-white. And I, I lived with him. I was surrounded by it. I, you know, that was all that I saw. So I believed it. We tell our stories. We change the world. A Little Bit Culty is proud to support the hashtag I Got Out Project, which empowers survivors of cultic abuse to share their stories online as a catalyst for education, prevention, and healing. Learn more about the hashtag I Got Out movement and find resources at igotout.org. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. As you can probably imagine, being in a cult for over a decade took a toll on some of my relationships with my closest friends and family. And something that has helped me mend those relationships has been working on my most complicated relationship of all time, the one I'm having with me. Therapy has been a great place to work through all that tricky stuff and can help you in your relationships too, whether it's with your friends, your coworkers, your significant other, or anyone. Things like coping skills, boundaries, communication, you can practice any of that in therapy and see big differences. I swear by therapy. Oh boy, do I swear by it. Yep, I love this journey for me. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online and you can schedule around what works for you. And all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. No brainer. This is the time of year when people talk about finding their soulmates and you can always become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash culty today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash culty. And when did it go from that to being next level? With like, how did you get involved with Identity Europa? And is that was that the next step? Yeah, um, I mean, okay. we had just started watching YouTube videos. He he showed me kind of he kind of opened me up to the white nationalist community that was online. For our listeners and partly myself, can you define white nationalist? Like, what does that entail? I mean, now it is a white ethno-nationalist supremacist. Like it's, it is white people that feel disempowered by the system and they want to live in it. Like they want segregation. They want women to not have rights or access to any sort of autonomy over their body. They, it's, it's misogynist. I'm not really sure how I would define it right now. Other like, okay, there's just, That's fair. yeah, there's a lot in it. I think. Is it synonymous with alt-right? Oh, yeah, sure. And something that I feel like is important that people don't realize is like the alt-right is like, yes, there's nuance in all of it. I can sit here for days Mm -hmm. and explain the differences. But the alt-right is like the new version of the KKK. And by the end of this year, by next year, there's going to be a new name for it. Like the alt-right, that title is dead or is on its way out. But there's something else. It's the same people. They're just wearing different colored shirts. Right. Like it's, it's, it. I feel like that's 
yes, the alt-right is synonymous with white nationalists, synonymous with white supremacists, neo-Nazi, all of that stuff. It's just different iterations of it to, to scam and hoodwink different versions of people. The main reason that I speak out is because people do. People still think that, like, I am way, I am never going to wear boots and braces and, like, you know, Doc Martens with red, red stripes and, and, and do that whole skinhead thing. Like, that... There are people like that that still exist. Of course, that is an iteration that's real. But right now, it's so much more like insidious. And it, it they mm-hmm. they play this like um, Identity Europa. They would do something called they would go tabling. They would go to college campuses and be like, oh, we're Identity Europa. We just want limited immigration. We want net zero immigration and something mm-hmm. else. We're a two issue organization. I can't remember what the second issue was. Probably something to do with white people. But <laughs> it was just a very like that was our issue. So they would go and they would say, oh, you're a Republican. You're probably anti-immigration. You should come hang out with us. Then they'd go hang out, get a couple drinks. And the people in IE are responsible, you know, they're clean cut. They look like normal people. They're not using racial slurs. So nothing is outwardly a problem other than this one issue aligns with who you are politically. And the majority of everything is also online where you can edit your response ad nauseum. Mm. Anything that you say can be edited and changed online. You can take as much time as you want. It's not a conversation that we're having right now. You're seeing my face and you're seeing my reactions to things and I'm responding in real time. Someone can text you a question and say, well, what do we do about this? You could take all the time in the world, Googling it, asking other white nationalists, doing whatever you need to, to edit the perfect response that eloquent and tailored to what that person needs to hear to keep them going. So essentially it was an online community and you didn't actually meet people till the first rally. Is that right? Yeah. So the way that IE was set up was that there was the founder, then there were like, the, he, there was a board of people. And then after that, like every state, once there were enough members, had a state coordinator. And the state mm-hmm. coordinator was recommended to have like monthly meetups um, just to, you know, vet everybody, make sure that you're a good person, fill them in on any activities, any, and just to build camaraderie, to build that community. I was shocked when I became an interviewer for IE how many people asked me if it was just a hiking club. It was just such a weird, like, oh, the marketing's working. Um, But um, yeah, so after that state coordinators, like I was the women's coordinator. So I was all the women in the country because there were that few. How many at the time? Uh, When I joined, I think there were about four. When I left, there were about 30 or 40. I hate that I'm good at stuff like that. I feel like it was exploited. And I know you you and I- I, Trust me. I I know. (laughs) I relate. Yeah. Yeah, it's a- a love-hate relationship Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with being a good recruiter, you'll find another good way to use that in a way that, well, it sounds like you are, but we'll get to that at the end, but what you're doing now. The structure of it and how it was benign to some people. It was a hiking club to some people. I mean, we're talking about something that is extreme at its worst and at its most benign. Some people think it's a hiking club. I think that's pretty telling. Yeah. And, you know, process wise. Yeah. And the propaganda that IE used, it would just say, like, become who you are, identity Europa, and like a picture of an old statue, you know, and just things like that. You're just standing there, like, huh, I wonder what this is. And it's very, like, sleek teal and white design. Like, there's, you're standing there and it's like, how bad can this really be? Like, this kind of just looks like an edgy, I don't know, it looks like you guys hang out on your computers a lot. And that's really it. Like, that's all I've got. <laughs> yeah. So there were state coordinators. And then within that, there were regional coordinators. Our team at A Little Bit Culty Podcasts loves the Blood Ties podcast because it is gritty and current and fascinating. It's also a little bit culty. 
Blood Ties, the award-winning audio drama from Wondery, returns for its third season, Strange Days, with another thrilling story about greed, power, and deception. Five years have passed since Eleanor, played by Jillian Jacobs of Community, took over as CEO of the infamous Richland Family Empire, alongside her half-brother, Santino, played by Christian Navarro of 13 Reasons Why. Together, they decide to invest the family fortune in a groundbreaking, controversial new drug. But as shocking revelations about the new treatment emerge, Eleanor and Santino go to every length to protect their control of the Richland family dynasty. As Eleanor's father always said, medicine is a bloody business. Listen to Blood Ties, Season 3, Strange Days, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or you can binge the whole series now, early and ad-free, by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Did anyone learn a language in high school and then let it go and then have regrets about that later? If you're anything like me, then maybe you'll relate. I did French all the way up into 12th grade and then I let it go. I mean, I lived in Montreal for a few years and, you know, practiced a bit, but it just slipped away. And then I found Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. And thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy little bite-sized language lessons, I've been able to get back my French. I've actually found learning French to be fun again. And c'est vrai, je parle français. (laughs) With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Formidable. That means wonderful in French. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. Clearly still working on that. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code CULTY. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code CULTY. Coordinators, there, were, it, there was a coordinator or someone to answer to at every level, no matter who you were. So it's well-organized? Yes. Okay. Funded? Uh, it's a $10 a month to be a member. And then on top of that, there were some shadow donors. There were some people that would, that would apply just to say, Hey, I can't openly be involved with you, but I'm a wealthy person or I'm a successful person. I'm a doctor. I'm a, this, I'm a lawyer. I'm, I can't be found out to be a part of these groups. So I will just give you money privately. Do you know what the money was used for? Do you know who those people are? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) This is not investigative. It sounds like it. No, no, no. No, I, no. I, I say that tongue in cheek, but I mean. Yeah, I. I yeah, somebody should be on that. There, there were people that would be worth knowing. So yeah, it was $10 a month. And I, I think about that a lot. So when I joined, there were only about 200 members. 200 times $10 a month is 2000 a month. By the end of 2017, when I had left or in October, there was, I think they were just at about or a little over a thousand members. So they're now making $10,000 a month off, off of this stuff. As I was getting towards the end, because I became the interview coordinator as well, my shtick in there was that I was very like hard. 
Like it was just, you had to look perfect. You can't be overweight. You have to look clean cut, perfect. Like we know what we're doing and we need to make sure that no one else knows that we're trouble. So we need to like only allow the best of the best in here, people that can pass all the normal person tests and not give it away that they're white nationalist. So when did it go for you from being like, we're proud European Caucasians to white um, nationalism? Yeah, like, when and did, I'm building this thing and I'm all in. Yeah, like what was wh- when was the switch, the old bait and switch? I had joined December 31st, 2016. I rang in 2017 as a dues paying member of Identity Europa. By the first week of March, I became the women's coordinator, mainly because all the other women left to join another cult. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was it? Oh, it was, you know? it was something really dumb. Uh, it was called like something Freya, something about oh. a Norse goddess who had blue eyes. And if you had blue eyes, you were a descendant of her. So you're like the purest white person, like really LARPy, embarrassing stuff. But so they left to do that. And I was like the only woman left. So they asked if I wanted to be the coordinator. And I said, yes, um, as a try hard, as someone who promotion, you got promoted. Yeah, I sure did. That really helps. Well, I don't know. How did it feel for you? I can only imagine <laughs> it did. I was ready to quit that day. And it was, I was gassed up. It was, oh my gosh, you found a community. Look at all this work that you're doing. Everyone here loves you. You would be so good. You already know how to get people in here. Why not? You make such good decisions help us make the decisions for them. Yeah. Well, we ask all our guests who extract themselves from such things is what were the red flags that you saw? And then what reconciliation. We, yeah. What, what we've had to recognize for ourselves, it's that we saw things that were sketchy or bad or not good, but those things were always overridden with the goodness. So like the goodness, it sounds like for you, we saw the symptoms, the community and the feeling special and feeling important. And your it sounds like your self-esteem was going up too. Oh, like, cause yeah. you felt like you had all these new things that you were doing and that feels good. But what did all those good things cover up? Like, what were you seeing that you now wish you had listened to in your gut? So, okay. So I became women's coordinator and then I went to one rally in May of 2017. It was in Charlottesville. It was the predecessor to the infamous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And when I went there, because there was no media coverage, there was no violence, there was nothing, it was considered a success by the far right, by white nationalists. And so that I was all in at that point. I was just, I want to quit my job and I want to be an activist for this cause. I want to do everything that I can to help this cause because I just went there and it was my first in-person thing and there were no cross burnings. There was no one in a hood. There was nothing... It was just a bunch of white people hanging out, you know, like that's, that's all that it was. So I ended up becoming involved with someone else who was rising in the ranks and they actually went on to be one of the people that planned the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Something happened where they needed to leave their situation. And I said to them, like, you can come and crash at my house. And they came and they just never left. You got doxxed, right? He sure did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> got- I, know, I know that. I know. I, that's the only reason I avoided <laughs> saying it. Cause I was like, I don't want yeah. to confuse anyone. Yeah. He got doxxed. Wait, wait, hold on. Let me just, let me just say it. So his public information was released, which is, let me see if I got this right. So when you join something like Identity Europa, you're, it's a secret, like a secret. You don't uh, use your real name. Yeah. You don't, yeah, you don't use your real name and it's a secret society and it's a, a private, what's it called? Trust something. So then when you get docs, those things are released, which is, it could be used against you. No, your identity is released yeah. and then the embarrassing information. Yeah. 
Well, it's not even necessarily embarrassing information. Um, it's that they'll reveal like your home address, your home phone number without your consent. Right. So high trust organization. That's what that was the word I was using. That's what they claim it is. Yes. Well, well, yeah. they, they die and they reveal that you're aligned with. With white nationalists. Yeah. With white nationalists. Yeah. yeah. And so this guy was doxxed and I still worked full time. So he would have his meetings and go on his podcast and do whatever it is that he was doing while I was at work, which I am convinced is mainly just playing video games and eating. What did he, he ate Popeyes <laughs> all the time. But um, anyway, so after that first rally in Charlottesville, there were, you know, obviously there were parties. So a bunch of people came from all over the country. This was an invite only thing for people in IE and whoever they deemed fine to come to this rally. And after the rally, we went to like an Airbnb for a party. So obviously all the leaders were there and I was being treated like a celebrity because I was an interviewer, because I was a women's coordinator. So it was crazy. I thought no one was going to know because I was like, well, it's all online, but everyone knew. Mm. You were love bombed. Oh, sure. Yes, absolutely. That was such a surreal experience. That was like, I I mean, I did. I felt like a celebrity. I felt like a rock star. Like I felt untouchable, mm. you know, and I wore my nice perfume and I went and did all the, you know, I don't know. It was just really weird. It must've felt pretty good. It did. It really did. And it took me a long time to admit that because- I know that it was not cool. It was not, I was not doing anything good, but I think people miss that like a lot of being in these groups is not about the politics or the racism. It's about the human connection in it. You know, Mm -hmm. you all have a common enemy and we happen to have like a very, I guess, you know, mainstream media and, and diversity was an enemy and that's everywhere. So it was very easy to like get very close with people in a way that you've never felt before. But yeah, so I was at this party and, you know, obviously, you know, Richard Spencer was there and Mike Enoch was there and all these other names were there. Can you tell our audience who Mike Richard Spencer is? Uh, Richard Spencer is um, obviously a white nationalist. And in the year 2017, he was kind of coming up. Like he was getting covered in magazines. He was on a speaking tour talking about white nationalism and how it's, you know, not as troubling as you think and that a peaceful ethnic cleansing was possible. And yeah. Um, <laughs> what does a peaceful ethnic cleansing look like? When you find I mean, out, you let me know. <laughs> um, okay. Well, they thought that was part of IE stance too, was that if you just get rid of immigration, all people, except for Europeans, white Europeans, that all people of color would just die out. And that's a peaceful ethnic cleansing. So it would just be white people left in America. I, it's not even logical. I I know having to, having to confront Uh, all of these, it was very quick for me to like leave the mindset of like all the tenants of the alt-right. Cause I was like, Oh, this is all garbage. Like this is terrible and not only terrible, but like impossible, illogical. It doesn't make any sense. It's out of touch with reality. Like just anyway. But so I was at this party and all these guys came in and, you know, every once in a while the party would erupt and people would see Kyle and Richard was there and Richard had been, you know, around. And for whatever reason, when the seek Kyle started, Richard looked at me. I hadn't seek Kyle at any of these times and he was just staring at me. And I got up and did it and was just like, yeah, I'll call your bluff. Like, I hate all of this. I, you know, like it was so not who I was and so not what I joined the movement for. So I did it. And later on in the party, we were both out on the porch. I was smoking a cigarette. Richard asked if he could borrow one. But we started talking and I talked to a lot of people in my job outside of what I was doing for IE. And so I have all these conversation starters 
Um, and one of them was, if you could live in any time period and have any job, what, what would it be? And he said that he would live in what the 50s or 60s or whatever, and he would be one of L. Ron Hubbard's disciples because the alt-right is the closest to being God that he will ever be. Wow. Yeah. And it's weird to have it so plainly said to me. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fascinating stuff, Richard. Like, just tell me more. Like, I just was so in the movement. He, I mean, he could have very clearly been like, actually, you know, like we, I don't, I don't know. He could have said anything at that point. And my identity was the alt-right. And to hear someone basically say like, this is my cult, you know, he coined the term alt-right. He asked me later on if he was like, well, you saw my speeches and those changed your life. I'm kind of like, he was talking to me about how young people see him as a God. And he was like, these young men see me as a God. And I was like, well, I was like, really? I was like, do you really think that? Do you like that? And he was like, absolutely. He's like, you saw my speech and yeah, I changed your life. I'm like a God to you. And I was like, you influenced me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call you a God. He didn't like that very much. But I mean, that, mm. that's, that's the alt right. Like everyone thinks that they're the next leader. Everyone thinks that if you meet the right person, you get to climb over top of them and become the next one. It's, it's just such a weird the infighting that goes on in the alt-right is so much more prevalent, but the far right is so good at putting up this false united front. You know, what you speak to is, you know, the thing that unifies people throughout history is they have a common myth, whether it be religion, government, banking systems or whatever. And it seems that there's uh, a common myth of white supremacy that people don't, I mean, do they all believe it or do they recognize this is what bonds us and they have the myth of the media and all these things are after them. From what I'm hearing, power seems to be the objective. Power is definitely it. I think I think different people have different motivators. I, For I, sure. It's case by case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I try to explain to people that like it's all the same house that you end up in. It's just different doors that you take to get there. Right. And so like for me, it was that I was in a relationship and I wanted a family. And, you know, I out, you know, after the whole white people are under attack thing, then it was, if you're a feminist, you have to have a job and you have to like, you know, I just, it just kept, once you get one idea in, you're Mm -hmm. much more likely to believe all the other ones. But I mean, I always felt outside of that weekend, every conversation I had with people in, in, in person or in a group chat or something like that, I kind of always felt like we were all just waiting for someone to just pull us aside and be like, Hey, you, you know, this Mm. is all bullshit, right? Or someone to pull aside and be like, hey, you know, this is the truth, right? Like there was never confirmation of if this was real, if this was the truth. It was just, you know, I, you know, we would test things out. The first, I remember the first time I tried to do that, I discovered that um, there's a slogan in the alt-right, there's 1488. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's 14 of the 14 words. And they're said, I think they're said by David Lane. He's part of this uh, neo-Nazi group called The Order And they murdered a Jewish um, DJ, like a radio DJ. And while he was in prison or while he was on trial or getting a sentence or whatever, he said this thing. And the long and short of it is like, we need to protect the legacy of white people at all costs and make sure that white kids have a future. But it was 14 words long, which also is very lengthy for a slogan. Like that also is not great. It would just be like, remember the 14 words. We're doing this for the 14 words, 14 words, 14 words. And then 88 H is the eighth letter in the alphabet. It means Hail Hitler, which again, should have known. But I just, you just don't question the doctrine. You just go in and you're like, sure, whatever you say, I'll sing the song, I'll do the dance. But I had mentioned in a group chat to someone 
you know, I was like, hey, how do we feel about the fact that the 14, like we're a movement of peace and we are just caring about legacy and we're just European people. Why is one of our most prominent slogans from a murderer who murdered a Jewish person? Like, I I just kind of had this, like, consider the source, Samantha. Mm. And I asked the other women in there um, or the other people in there. And it was just, we don't talk, you know, the messenger is not what matters. It's the message. You know, we just, we just don't question. We just don't question it. That's just what we do. And I just started finding those little threads to just untie, like, like weird, if we're peaceful and Dylan Roof wasn't alt-right or one of us, why is he called Saint Roof? And why are people getting bowl cuts to look like him? And why are they saying that they want to do a, make a statue of him in the ethno state? Like, that's really weird that we're a peaceful movement, but we're praising this this, mm-hmm. you know, this murderer. So the inconsistencies are there. You're presenting family values, but almost every leader that's in there, almost every prominent name in the alt-right has cheated on their wife, is a philanderer, like has gotten women drunk and taken advantage of them, all kinds of things. That's Was great. it a case of the behavior becoming more overt or you were getting exposed to it and they felt comfortable in front of you? I think it was a mix of both. I mean, all of this was leading up to the Unite the Right rally in Charlotte. And so, you know, the alt-right is becoming empowered and emboldened of just like, we just had this successful rally in May and now we're going to have everyone on the right coming here and you're not going to bully the alt-right out of Charlottesville. And so I'm, and I'm also privy to those conversations from the people that are hosting the podcast and having on the guests and doing the public speaking. And I'm hearing them in their private life now. So it's not just the polished version of them. So I'm seeing it all around me fall apart and crumble while it's now all that's around me, all of my friends, all of my family, like for have, have all but completely cut me off. And this is all that I have. The ship was sinking, but there was no way out. Cause it sounds like similar to us. It wasn't just one thing. There were little things that happened along the way. Yanya Yelich, who wrote Take Back Your Life, talks about how like you put it on the shelf. Yeah. You put you put the item on the shelf and eventually the shelf comes down. Comes down, yeah. Yeah. What was the final thing for you? It was obviously, there was so much more than this, but it was two things. Obviously it was the Unite the Right rally that led to Heather Heyer's death. That was me realizing that like, this this is absolutely just violence. This is chaos and violence. And there's there's there is no heritage. There is no pride. There's nothing about this. This is violence, abject terror. And then two months later to the day, my grandmother passed. And I realized when I got the call that my grandmother passed that not only did I avoid speaking to her because I was busy having coordinator meetings for IE, but that she died and had no reason to be proud of me in her death. I was very close with her growing up. I cared about her so much. She is like the coolest, weirdest woman. (laughs) And... I just had that moment of realizing, like, I would rather die trying to get out of this than die in it. Wow. How did you, how'd you get out? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because you can't just leave. You can't just say, hey, I'm leaving. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. No. The alt-right makes a lot of jokes about playing 40 chess, and that's pretty much what I did. So for me personally, I treated it like an abusive relationship where I found a place about two months before I decided to leave, I got a storage unit and little by little, um, me and the the person that I was with, we had broken up. I had tried to break up with them several times. And this is not your first, no. not the love of your life. What no. happened to him? I have to ask, where, where did he go? After I got back from the rally in May, things had been on the rocks for him and I for a while because I became women's coordinator. And he kept saying, why can't you just let me have something for myself? Oh. Like White nationalism was his thing, but I was better at it. Yeah. So you rose up. 
he also ended up leaving IE a week before the Unite the Right rally. Like he left the movement wow. altogether. I had been in touch with him a couple times after that, and he wants to be a better person, but he's too stubborn and and he's probably not ever going to be. And that really sucks. But it's hard to reconcile delusion. And this is something that Nippy and I talk about a lot. And this is why we ad- admire your work in being public, because it's one thing to say and realize that you make a mistake. And it's another thing to be public about it and try to help others in the same situation, just because you're under scrutiny. Like I totally get where you're at in terms of being under public scrutiny for that mistake. I'm trying to be the person that I wish I had when I was going through mm-hmm. all of that. And I'm hoping I can be that for someone else. Yeah, 100%. It, it, you know, one of the things I told Sarah, you know, and wanted, wanting to speak with you is I've heard some of your interviews and, and you, you've definitely, from what I've assessed, come a long way since some of the interviews uh, that you're in. Is there a justice for you at the end of this? And what would that look like? And what do you hope to see in that regard? I know that racism isn't going to go away. I know that white supremacy will always exist. I know that all of those things are. But if I can help be a part of the dismantling of these groups and to make sure that like whether you're racist, whether you're white supremacist or not, you try to act on it, you will fuck around and find out. I don't want anyone who has these ideas to think that these ideas are okay or safe or anything. I don't think anyone in the movement is necessarily a bad person. I would love it if people were able to see what I saw and and figure all of that out. But I mean, I just, my justice would be that everyone that I could get out would get out. This would go back into the garbage dump from which it came. Like, I feel like that's so important for people to understand that this is not just the middle school dropout that had to like work at the gas station. I met doctors and lawyers, international fund people. I knew people in the White House. You can't keep pretending like it's so far away from you. There's an article you sent us. There's a little caption I want to read that particularly that that resonated with me. And I think this is why a lot of people, when they tune these things in and and this, this kind of underscores your point a little bit, is most people, when they listen to this kind of thing or they hear this story, they want to think or believe that they're immune, that it happened to Samantha, but that it could never happen to them or their husbands or their brothers or anyone else they knew. Well, Samantha thought maybe some of you are immune, but not all of you, and maybe not most of you. And that, to me, is one of, I think, the more human things. I think you, your story captures it well, that a lot of people don't want to think that they're susceptible to these things. And yeah. the very way to ensure your susceptibility is believe that you're not susceptible to it. Because a lot of the people, to your point, are people that are functioning in society. And, and you know, you said there's people in, in the White House. It's interesting to me because these ideas catch hold with credible people. And I think that's also part of the heal, at least it's been for us, part of our healing and our personal redemption is trying to share with people where they're not immune so that they can make, make sure it doesn't happen to other people. I know you're, you're in therapy and you're doing this advocacy work and listening to your earlier interviews. It reminded me of my my early interviews on Nexium Uncover, the podcast I did for the CBC, where I'm still clearly like in the trauma of it. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time trying to extract people and try to take down this, you know, organization turned to be cult that I built. And that's a hard thing to do publicly. But in essence, I felt like that's what I had to do to heal, to go like, oh shit, I had played a huge part in this. I've got to take, part of me taking responsibility was telling the world, shouting from the rooftop what Nexium truly was. And it seems like that's what you're doing. I'm wondering where you are in that process. I mean, I don't think I'm out of the woods 
And in the beginning, that was really hard because I didn't know how to explain to people like, yes, I was a villain and a victim. And I, I don't know how to take responsibility, but also ask for a, just a little bit of grace, just a little bit. That forgiveness was not going to come from anyone else. You know, I met so many people that would be like, oh my God, I would have never suspected that. Like, you seem really cool. Glad that's not who you are anymore. Let's let's do this. And I used to, in the very beginning, after I left, I would just pour it out. I had like a greatest hits list of like all the things that I thought were the worst things I had ever done. And part of my healing is extending myself that grace and looking at old me, at young me, and just feeling bad for her. No one else is going to do it because that's, they don't need to, but like, I do. Mike Rinder shared with us when he was talking about leaving Scientology, because he also very publicly admits to doing very bad things yeah. as the punisher of the group and just saying that you can't, you can't go back and change that. And yeah. guilt kind of holds that in, in place. But what you can do is say, I did these bad things and I'm going to be different moving forward and act differently. And, and part of that is shining the light on that so it doesn't happen to other people. That I think is a, what most people don't do when they wake up from any kind of coercive control or high control group or cult or radical anything is they go, oh my God, I was a part of something bad. And then they run for the hills and hide. And the fact that you're not makes it possible for these things to be exposed. And I think that's the most important thing. Well, future freedom is also part of my healing process. It was a way for me to you know, when I left and all this stuff, there wasn't, there really wasn't anyone that had left the movement that had left in this new iteration that had a path forward. So me and, and uh, Kaylin and Caleb, we started this just to kind of not only tell our stories in hopes of inspiring other people to question their beliefs and to question the movement or any extremist movement, but also to amplify the voices of other people that have left who might not be ready to speak out the way that we did. We just kind of want to be that place where it's like, hey, we get it and we're here for you. And it's been really, really wild and really cool. Just the outreach and the different kinds of outreach that we've been getting. It's been nuts. And do you think you'll ever be done apologizing? No, I obviously don't think I've done enough. I never was violent or anything like that, but through tacit approval and through bringing people in and building, being someone who helped build this machine, like I'm okay with never, at least right now with where I'm at, I'm okay with not fully forgiving myself. I still have work to do. I'm still not even through dealing with the aftermath of all this stuff that happened to me while I was in there. That's going to be an ongoing process. And I, I, I don't think I've done enough by no, like by no means do I think I've done enough and I will not stop until I feel like I have. And I don't know when that's going to be. I don't have like a number or a date or anything. I just, I'm just going to keep doing this. It's rewarding to me to know that I'm able to help people that needed it. And in terms of the people that were targets of the ill will, of the racism, of the shitty behavior and ideas as each day comes, I will welcome any opportunities to do that. I'm nowhere near done. Okay. I apologize in advance for this question, but in regards to redemption and atonement, have you reached out to any of the victims and in particular Heather Heyer's mother? And if not, what would you say to her? You know, I really don't know. I've thought about going to Charlottesville. I've actually had a few friends that have gone that would text me and be like, oh, I was in Charlottesville and I thought of you. And that's such a fucking weird thing to think. They think of me in this, like, I'm so proud of you for getting out and doing the right thing. And I love it. I think it's such a sweet gesture that they're trying to do that. But um, 
Heather Heyer is dead and she's not coming back. And um, I don't know what I would do. I would ask Susan Brow, I believe is her name, Heather's mom, to tell me her favorite stories of Heather. I would just want to know that something good can come out of it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> that was a... Uh, um, yeah, I did not expect that question at all. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I think this stuff is hard. I, I don't know. There's no other way to, around it, really. You know, this is all a process. You know, it takes time. It takes time. And these aren't super relatable problems. So finding the help and being able to talk to people that get it is also, it's difficult and it's niche. And I feel like that takes a little bit more time too. You know, what a crazy world, you know, Jewish Canadian can meet this former white nationalist and have a conversation about it though. Seriously, that's kind of crazy. It is. Everyone that helped me when I was leaving the movement was Jewish. Every single person. Yeah, it's it's astounding to me what like exposure to just good people at any point in time can do for someone. We've had our guardian <laughs> angels kind of waiting for us when we got out. So hopefully yeah. we can provide some of that and pay it forward to you. Keep doing the work for yourself, you know, and being gentle with yourself too, because ultimately you did the right thing and that's hard. Thank you. Appreciate you telling your story. Big, big right. virtual hugs. Aw, thanks. thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Bye, guys. Wow. That was, I mean, yep. a, probably one of the more emotionally challenging interviews we've ever done and the most we've had to prepare since yeah. I just, I, I did, I needed to understand it. And, and I, I feel like there's more episodes there. Yeah. And season two is going to be, <laughs> yeah, we're getting ready to cap uh, off this first season. Sarah's heading to set making of a Hallmark film roadhouse romance. I, I thought it was roadhouse too. And I got really excited for her because there needs to be a roadhouse. Sort of too. the opposite of roadhouse too. <laughs> But I think uh, it's going to be fun. I get to wear some cowboy boots. And Nippy here is going to throw down some honey-soaked voiceovers for some upcoming voice work. And we're going to get down to that research for the 11 million topics that you've all sent us. Thank yeah. you. Including, as promised, different yoga groups, Landmark, many, many more experts, and corporate cultiness. We'll be back soon. Okay, seriously, thanks to our audience, everyone interacting with us on Instagram. You've been really awesome and so supportive. And we really do appreciate you tuning in. The reviews, the stars, the notes, the messages, all the support. We'll be back. He's drinking ice. Oh my God, now he's drinking ice in the middle of the podcast. You can't, like, who does that? Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sinking down to the depths of the ocean. We're going to be back soon with more episodes of A Little Bit Culty with more experts and survivors and sometimes experts who are survivors and some familiar faces from The Vow. If you got suggestions or questions on upcoming topics, find us on Instagram at A Little Bit Culty. And for more background on what got me to this point, my memoir, Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life, is available on Amazon, Audible, and wherever books are sold. 
If you'd like to help us spread the word about a little bit culty podcast, please give us a five star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Like literally take their phone out and, and press subscribe. Five stars. Five That's stars. five of them. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. A Little Bit Culty is executive produced by me, your co-host, Sarah Edmondson, and Anthony Nippy Ames. Associate producer is Jess Tardy. Produced, edited, mixed, and mastered by Citizens of Sound. Our amazing theme song, Cultivated, is by John Bryant and co-written by Nigel Asselin. Additional original music is composed by Will Rutherford. We'll be back with more episodes. Until then, don't don't join join a a cult. I'm Sarah Edmondson, and thanks for listening to A Little Bit Culty. Our team at A Little Bit Culty Podcasts loves the Blood Ties podcast because it is gritty and current and fascinating. It's also a little bit culty. Blood Ties, the award-winning audio drama from Wondery, returns for its third season, Strange Days, with another thrilling story about greed, power, and deception. Five years have passed since Eleanor, played by Jillian Jacobs of Community, took over as CEO of the infamous Richland Family Empire, alongside her half-brother, Santino, played by Christian Navarro of 13 Reasons Why. Together, they decide to invest the family fortune in a groundbreaking, controversial new drug. But as shocking revelations about the new treatment emerge, Eleanor and Santino go to every length to protect their control of the Richland family dynasty. As Eleanor's father always said, Medicine is a bloody business. Listen to Blood Ties, Season 3, Strange Days, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or you can binge the whole series now, early and ad-free, by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app.